Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of charts at Billboard. The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be discussing the 30th anniversary of Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love album with former Billboard staffer Jim Aswad. The guys chat about the factors that led to the album being somewhat commercially underwhelming at the time of its release and debate whether or not the album holds up better three decades later. Plus, they also talk about Jim's experience interviewing Springsteen for his recent Variety magazine cover story. So, stay tuned for that in just a few moments. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode and give us a rating or review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So here's some chart trivia for you about uh, Springsteen and Tunnel of Love and the album that preceded that, uh, Born in the USA. You may have heard of it. Um, Tunnel of Love was Springsteen's first studio album following the blockbuster success of Born in the USA, which was released in 1984, spent seven weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, spawned seven top 10 singles on the Billboard Hot 100, and was certified 10 times platinum by the Recording Industry of Association of America by the time Tunnel was released in 1987. Eventually, Born in the USA went 15 times platinum. Truly, Born in the USA was a phenomenon. Still, Tunnel was a respectable commercial success. It hit number one on the Billboard 200 chart, generated a pair of top 10 hits on the Hot 100 with its title track and Brilliant Disguise, and was certified triple platinum by the RIAA. So, Let's go back to 1987 and talk all things Bruce on Coming Around. Hello and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast celebrating anniversaries in the music world. Uh, this week we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Bruce Springsteen's classic album Tunnel of Love, which turned 30 either on October 9th or October 6th or maybe the 5th, uh, depending on which sources you believed. Uh, I, I couldn't say for certain, but uh, sometime in the last week in any event. Uh, and here to, to ride into the tunnel with us, we have a man who's hung out with Bruce uh, more recently than, than, than anyone here at Billboard, and that's uh, former Billboard great Jem Aswad. What's up, Jem? Hey, how are you? So how does it how does it feel to be back? Uh, it's great to be back in this tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't I, don't, I never got you. Like, what's what's your official uh, official position at Variety? Oh, senior music editor of Variety. So um, yeah, senior music editor Jem Aswad recently wrote a cover story involving Bruce Springsteen in his recent uh, Bruce on Broadway run down the shore with Bruce. Uh, so how, how much time did you actually get with Bruce for this story? Um. An hour and 15 minutes around that. All right. And then was that in person? Did you meet him at like a, like a oh, Jersey diner somewhere? Or? Please. I went to the farm. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's in the middle of the central Jersey countryside. It's beautiful. Um, okay. Lots of people running around. Um, I didn't see the house. 
Uh, I didn't see the farm, although or the barn. I assume there actually is one, but it was uh, in one of the lounges outside his home studio, and it was lovely. And what was really interesting is in the lounge, there was every rock book you can imagine. I mean, pretty much... A student of history, certainly. Uh, yeah, and also probably to keep people entertained while they're waiting. <laughs> so he's got like a little waiting room area, basically? Yeah, yeah, there All are right. a couple of lounges outside it. Um, but yeah, guitar cases, you know, mm-hmm. lots of Bruce pictures on the wall, like outtakes from the Born to Run session and stuff like that, and tons and tons and tons and tons of books. And, and how is Bruce looking these days? That's what people, people really want to know about. Oh, he looks great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, tall, you know, really commanding presence. But this is probably my, you know, expectation as much as anything. But, like, I was expecting to be dazzled by his charisma or whatever, you know. But it was really more like – it was more like being with a governor or something like <laughs> that, you know. I mean, yeah. or someone, you know, someone who's used to being in power, the boss. Right, yeah. You know, so, I mean, you definitely got that vibe. And he's a bit taller than I expected, too. And then you even talked with him about his uh, potential aspirations for political office, and he seems to have shot that down pretty quickly. Oh, well, yeah, that wasn't a surprise. But, you know, <laughs> you got to ask the question. Well, that uh, certainly it's, it's, it's a very engaging read. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But uh, so we were here to talk about Ton of Love. And uh, just before we get into kind of the, the crux of the album, uh, what's your personal history with Bruce? You, know, you were telling me a little bit that you're, you're maybe not as much of a super fan as, as some people might think. Yeah, I mean, based on that. Um, but, you know, my bona fide are my mother bought me born to run when i was 12 and you know i still think it's one of the greatest albums ever made Mm -hmm. um there it's really vivid it's like a a short story collection it's you know a collection of connected short stories and you know 12 years old and binghamton new york i'm just like you know what kind of world is this (laughs) you know no it was fascinating and i to be honest didn't like the turn he took after at anywhere near as much. And he's kind of stayed with that. I, I asked him about it in the article. It's like, you know, are you ever, do you ever think you're going to do that sort of, you know, almost impressionistic kind of, kind of storytelling? Cause it's very direct. I work in the factory, you know? Yeah. Um, and he said, nah, you never, you never really recapture what you did when you were younger. Um, but it was a, a pretty stark turn, and you know he's kind of been on that path ever since. Even though every album is different from the one that's come before it. Yeah, and, and certainly this one was worlds away from from Born in the USA, which came before that and made him I don't know the, the, certainly the biggest rock star of his day, maybe the biggest solo rock star since Elvis Presley. Like, uh, it, hmm. I was thinking about well, we're that. Not, like, well, the biggest, biggest, biggest solo, solo rock, rock stars since Elvis Presley. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's other contenders there, certainly. But when you think about it, uh, I don't know if there was anybody on that kind of level of iconicity that also had, you know, the, both the blockbuster sales and the critical acclaim and, you know, obviously uh, you know, the, the visual aspect as well with the, the, the advent of MTV. Yeah, I think it's certainly an argument to be made that, that he was the biggest in that kind of 30-year span after Elvis's peak. Um, I think you're really, really undervaluing Huey Lewis. I bid you good day, <laughs> sir. Well, it's one A and one B in some <laughs> order, certainly. But in any event, uh, born in the USA, you know, uh, you know, sells an absurd amount of copies of the kind of the advent of the CD, the CD era. Yeah, uh, spawns seven top ten hits. You want, you want to take a crack at naming the seven top ten hits, Jim? Or is oh, it- sure. Okay. Let's see: Dancing in the Dark, uh, Glory Days, My Hometown. <clears throat> Oh, there's a big one I'm missing. There's a big. There was a video. There's. Um, I give up. Well, you're missing one particularly obvious one, which is uh, "Born in the USA" itself. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. You didn't. Did you say "Glory Days"? I did. Uh, so I'm going down. 
Didn't get that one. Cover Me and uh, I'm on Fire is the other big video one, I guess. A lot of those are not his best songs, to be honest. I don't know about that. I mean, I would certainly say Mm -hmm. that, uh, maybe not Cover Me. That was like a song meant for Donna Summer. It just kind of got stuck with Bruce at the last minute there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, no. Glory Days, I'm on Fire. Those are those sure. songs. That no, a lot of up. a lot of them are. I also have heard them too much. But yeah, Tunnel of Love was was a left turn, and yeah. fans have gotten used to that. I think, and they were probably used to that then. I think they knew he wasn't gonna. Well, longtime fans knew he mm-hmm. wasn't gonna follow it with a carbon copy of um, of what he had done before. And especially the tour was really different. Like I didn't see that tour, but reading about it, it's just like. You know, it had this sort of conceit to it, you know, like there was this, all the band members were in different places and yeah, like, was, you know, there was like down a and stage and, yeah. set and yeah, it was it was just a different kind of thing. And fans did not necessarily love it. They were kind of confused by it. Yeah, just do you even remember like what the expectation was for the album going in? Like, did, did were there any, was there anybody left that was still hoping that he was going to make kind of a Born in the USA part two, or did everyone sort of concede this was a one time thing? You know, Bruce tends to go commercial then artistic, commercial then artistic. Well, and... that wasn't that wasn't part of the dialogue at the time, okay? Right? Because he followed the river with Nebraska, and people were just like, "What the hell?" Right? You know, that, why that did he make this? Th- hand, yeah, he made it on he made it on a cassette. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Born in the USA makes him exponentially a bigger star than he'd ever, ever been. He was just about the biggest star in the world at the time. Um, and then there was the live album, a triple live sure, album. Right, so yeah. the so Tunnel of Love came up, as I remember, a little unexpectedly. And, you know, when you've had a big blockbuster like that, like around the same time, Prince followed Purple Rain with Around the World in a Day sure. 10 months later. Hardly anybody knew it was coming, and it's this weird album, and everybody's just like, oh. (laughs) You know, and with Tunnel of Love, there was a little bit of that as well. He also, and this is part of the reason I don't think the album has aged as well as the songs might have, is the production. Okay, because to prepare for this article, like, there were a lot of Bruce albums I hadn't heard in a really long time, so I listened to every single one. I went through his entire discography and listened to each album, and... The drum sound. It is a fine young cannibal's drum sound. It is the epitome of the bad 1980s. I'm not even sure if it's a Lynn drum, but the Mm -hmm. whoosh. Okay. And that caused me at the time and over the years to not value a lot of those songs for as good as they are. Because I was, you know, I kept going back to um, Tougher Than the Rest, sure. which I actually first noticed in Everything But the Girl's cover of it, which is actually gorgeous. So I saw that that existed this morning. Yeah. I'd never heard that. It's where, beautiful. Where did, where did that come from? It's where, beautiful. Where? They did a covers okay. album. And That's um, a good choice. It's, it's, it's an incredible song. Uh-huh. And I always listen past it because of that stupid drum sound. So I'm like, all right, maybe there's a live version of it somewhere. And he put out an EP that I didn't even either know or remember. He put out, it's called the Chimes of Freedom EP. And it's actually great. It's like, it's four songs. Um, He covers Chimes of Freedom, which is a Dylan song. But the birds are the ones who really made it. It's on their first album. It's just this jangle, heaven, gorgeous harmony kind of thing. And he doesn't try to do that. It's got some of the jangle in it, but he does a really good version of it. And there's a live version of Tougher Than the Rest on it with Patty on it. And Patty makes a huge difference in that song. And then that became kind of a live standard of the two of theirs, right? Yeah. You, you even ask her about it, which is a bit of a yeah. – I want to get into that in a second. But, yeah, I mean the, the production is certainly the dividing line for this album, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I think is interesting 
is that it does, in a lot of ways, I think, come down to a generational divide because I think the people that grew up with Bruce Springsteen as the kind of Dylan-esque uh, singer-songwriter, stadium rocker, the people that, that still kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that hold on to that vision of him as you know, the leader of the E Street Band, mm -hmm. first and foremost, I think they are really put off by this, by the kind of the synth-heavy sound, the plodding, you know, groaning uh, keys, and then obviously the, the, the heavily echoed drums and stuff like that. Uh, people of, of, of my generation, I tend to think, are a little bit more okay with that. We kind of sort of take that as, as, as like a, a kind of a given in our, in our you know, uh, our musical upbringing. It doesn't feel as alien. And I think you, you hear it a lot, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but you hear it a lot in rock these days. Like I, I went to a, uh, the taping of the Bleachers Unplugged concert sure. that they did out in, actually in Asbury. And, and, mm -hmm. and so it, it was, it was going to be you know, pretty quintessential Bruce no matter what. But listening to the stripped down arrangements of the songs, and they had the same kind of like moaning synths and the same kind of very he you know, heavily mechanized drums. And it's like I, I had to listen to Tunnel of Love on the way back from that concert because like I just had all the songs stuck in my head. It sounded so much like that album. And you hear that in some of the, the recent War on Drugs stuff. You hear it in some Heim sure. stuff. Like, like I, I think uh, you know, a friend of the podcast, Stephen Hyden, had a podcast about the, some of the albums in 1987. And he mentioned in particular Fleetwood Mac's Tango in the Night and Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love as two albums that like at the time maybe were written off by, by, by my music fans because of their production, because it was kind of you know, very 80s and very of the time and very maybe cheesy to a certain extent, mm -hmm. but that, that in the three decades since that the music's kind of caught up to it and that now that we're, we're in less of a traditional rock mold to begin with, that having that kind of pop production doesn't sound as, uh, A, as dated and B, as like explicitly I don't know, inartistic as, as it might have been at the time. Is that, does any of that track for you? Yeah, it was ubiquitous, you know? Yeah. I mean, like at the, at the time, you know, you just get this sort of like mild PTSD when I hear that <laughs> drum sound. It's totally understandable, um, obviously. But, you know, it's really just the drum sound. The okay. rest of the synths and everything like that, there, you know, there's, there's, you can come back to those. Um, but, mm -hmm. no, it was really just like it is, it, it gets in the way of the song. Yeah, no, I, I hear that, but the, I'll give it up, especially for one moment, which is uh, at the beginning of Tougher Than the Rest. That's as you know, the, the album starts with "Ain't Got You," which is this very mm. stripped down, folky kind of like winking, ironic uh, comment from Bruce about his own like super super celebrity and uh, you know, you know, I got you know priceless Rembrandts in my house and, and all that, but I bet I ain't got you. And it, it's, it's kind of a lark almost. Yeah, uh, and it ends like in two minutes in, like like way before you think it will. And then those drums just just appear from tougher than the rest, and then and then they're mm -hmm. pounding. And I, I guess that's a bad thing for you. I think it's one of the most arresting moments wow. on this record. No, that's I mean that's it's always you always have an interesting perspective <laughs> on things, and that's a new one as well. All right, well. I think the I mean I think the other great song on there, and he apparently thinks so too, is "Brilliant Disguise." Absolutely. You know, I mean, and those are the ones. I mean, last night, night before last at the show. That was, that's, those are the two songs Patty came out for. Spoiler alert! Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so speaking about Patty so much, uh, so, I mean, this album gets kind of an interesting place in Bruce's personal life because, you know, he, uh, he gets married to, to Julianne Phillips mm -hmm. basically on, on the tour for Born in the USA, I think. Like she, she's, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, they met like a year earlier. It was kind of a whirlwind romance. They get married. And then two years later, he releases this album, which... Is a very heavy, you know, a lot of people come to call it a divorce album, even though in reality, and this surprised me kind of looking back on it, it's actually just as close to the beginning of his marriage as the end. They, got, they get divorced in 1989, and, and he ends up uh, living with Patty Scalfa. Scalfa? Scalfa? Yeah, Scalfa. Scalfa, okay. Uh, and 
So like, uh, I mean, this, this gets this gets labeled a divorce album because the, the songs are so heavy and, and they kind of have the weight of history behind them and all that. But it's also just like a recently married album. I mean, how do you see this album fitting in, in, in Bruce's I, romantic I, timeline, if I at all? Think, well, okay. Since we're going there, Andrew, um, I think it's uh, – you could really have a field day psychologically with what was going on there. And he talks about this quite a bit in his autobiography. Um but there is – for a just married man on the cover, he's standing there with flowers in his hand like he just <laughs> turned up for the dream date of the century. Sure. And he just got married. So It's a very misleading it, album cover by the right? way. Right? Yeah. You know? I mean it's just like a uh, date night. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it also just looks like – the way he's dressed in the car, it looks like it's going to be like a fabulous Thunderbirds album. Like I, <laughs> you think it's going to be just kind of throwback like uh, you know, 50s, 60s rock album and instead of this you know, very heavy with the synths wow, and the, the drums and so forth. I can't that. even – think of the last time I thought about the fabulous Thunderbirds. No, no, it's it's really, really interesting. And and that's, I mean, one of the questions I asked him was, I said, was Patty in your life when you wrote Tougher Than the Rest? And, I love that question. I never even considered it. Well, because it does sound like, it sounds like it's their song. And sure. he said that as much. And, you know, the thing I said to him was, it sounds like when you sing it together, it sounds like you wrote it for her. And he was just like, oh, maybe I did. <laughs> they didn't say the whooping that you made in the background, but he said, maybe I did. Yeah, and that was you know that was that was a really interesting moment you know just like getting that out of him, but it's almost like psychologically, he knew something was going on because he and Patty flirted really hard, sure. and you know the stage stuff that he would say to her was really kind of explicit, and, you know, kind of not cool. Um, the, like I if mean, you're so married, that, was that so. really part of his narrative at the time? Was that yes, like, fa- this fancy hot you, little like... redhead kind of thing? You know, I mean, I don't remember his exact words, but uh-huh. like. You know, I mean, if I were his wife, I'd be like, what's going on here? Is this an actor? What are you doing, pal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they, they start living together, I think, in 1988, which is you know not long after this album came out. And I think it's still a year before they actually officially divorce uh, him, and, him and Julianne. But, yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, when, when I've you know living with Tougher Than The Rest for however long I, I, I've known the song, I, it always struck me as kind of a, uh, like, uh, when you approach the end, you look back at the beginning sort of song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it didn't even occur to me that he might have actually been living that in two separate romantic timelines where he actually is towards the end of his relationship with Julianne, but also looking towards the beginning of, of Patti Scalfa. I and mean, it makes it such a, a richer album to think of both of these kind of storylines interplaying with one another and sometimes in the same songs. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Brilliant Disguise. I, I do think that that is probably one of his, his, his all-time great lyrics and all-time great songs. Uh, is there, like, a line from that song that, that particularly sticks with you? Or what, what, what makes it kind of stand out for you as, as one of his all-timers? I mean, to be honest with you, his um, – it, it's the song. It's okay. not as much the, the lyrics or the meaning behind it or anything like that, you know, because, you know, like – Bruce's lyrics are an, are, are an investment, you know, I mean, it's no like doubt. it takes time to dig into them and try to parse apart what he's saying, even though a lot of what he says, as I was saying about darkness, is just super direct, mm-hmm. you know, but and, and he, he, you know, he, he leans towards these big metaphors, you know, people don't talk about it that much, but I see so much John Steinbeck in his lyrics and his storytelling and his metaphors and what he's getting at and and also who he's writing about. You know, I mean, a lot of the time he's writing about not necessarily Okies or whatever, but, you know, (laughs) I mean, he's he's writing about that class of people. Sure. Um, So having said that, I mean, Brilliant Disguise is the sort of song that I think he would write about. He would write when he's questioning – 
you know, when, when you're the superstar looking in the mirror and everybody's telling you you're so great. Okay. And, you know, you're just like, am I this? You know, who am I really? You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of conflict in there. So you see it as being a bunch, as much about him and his career as about him and his uh, – or him and his public image even as much as him and, and you know, his romantic partner at the I time. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think he's looking at himself as much as he's looking at the partner. And I think he does that a lot. You know, I mean, I think he almost deliberately puts a – not a dichotomy, but you know, a mm-hmm. double meaning in things sure. and a double interpretation. And all and a couple, a couple of songs in the album kind of play with that too. I mean, there's two faces. Obviously, does that pretty explicitly. Uh, and yeah, like, one of the really interesting things about this album, uh, you know, we, talk, we talked about the seven top ten hits off of uh, off of Born in the USA. There's only three singles off this album, period, at least in the mm-hmm. US, and they're all in the second half of the album. It's like it's it's so it's it's uh, you are, we already talked about uh, about brilliant disguise, one step up, which is just an absolutely brutal song. It's, it's mm-hmm. maybe, it's almost kind of sounds like a slow core song. It's like a, mm-hmm. like, like it, it's, it's almost impossible to get through sometimes, but it was a top 20 hit in the U S. Uh, I and, didn't even know that really. <laughs> well, that, that, that was just Bruce at the time, I guess. But, but uh-huh. the, the fact that he only, uh, well, sorry to getting ahead, but uh, the third one was the title track tunnel of love. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we talk about tougher than the rest and brilliant disguise being the two kind of co-masterpieces on the album. I tend to agree with that. I've really been getting into the song tunnel of love recently. Wow. I, I think that it's probably the most interesting song on the album, both in terms of like, you know, it, it sounds kind of dippy from the title and from and from some of the the more obvious refrains on the song. But you know, it's it's a very lyrically comp- complex song. It talks a lot about the same kind of insecurities that are all throughout the rest of the album. It's a very musically complex song. There's there's no, there's no chorus in that mm-hmm. song. It's over five minutes long. There's no chorus, mm-hmm. but there is a bridge and a guitar solo and a kind of fake out intro. And and the other thing about the song that I find really interesting is that. You know, the other, so the, there were a couple other big things happening in rock in 1987. Uh, one of them that, that uh, kind of happened in between Born in the USA and Tunnel of Love, which I, I almost wonder caused him to do kind of the left turn on this album, is the, the, you know, the ascent of hair metal, and particularly Bon Jovi, who, you know, sort of took up the mantle for, for Bruce in terms of arena rock from, from the state of New Jersey. In the, Very in the much so, unquestionably. Uh, and maybe he didn't even want to compete with them. I could sort mm-hmm. of see that. It would make sense. It's, it's sort of a different track, even though they were kind of ha- I'm sure they had a lot of the same audience, but, uh, you know, much more obvious kind of chest-beating stuff than what Bruce was going for. But the other big thing in 1987 was U2. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they took up kind of the other half of Bruce's personality, which is the sort of, you know, the, the Rolling Stone poster boys, you know, the kind of social conscience and, and the, the, the arena rock righteousness as opposed to, like, the, the, the pandering to the back seats, but the sort of the, 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 the causes and the... Oh, just say it, messianic. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And it's, it's always funny when you kind of see Bruce and Bonner together, like, on, like, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stage. When they have that I'm God. No, I'm God. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, they, they kind of take the piss out of one another a little bit because I think they both realize that they're occupying the same sort of space in rock history. But U2, like this sounds like a U2 song, like Tunnel it of does. Love. Yeah. It's got the same kind of like, like the rocking acoustics that never stop and the, 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 the widescreen production. He and... saw them coming and he knew he had to, I mean, look, not to harp on the drum sound again, but like, <laughs> you know, that was his, he, yes, he is a very willful, strong-willed, I'm doing this artist. You know, I interviewed Jimmy Ivey about him, and he said, I had never seen anyone who was so dedicated to what he was doing. We're just saying something coming from Jimmy Ivey, yes. certainly. And he's just, you know, he wants to be contemporary. He is very, 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 very competitive. And, you know, hence the production on that album. Part of mm-hmm. it was experimenting. I don't want to keep doing what I was doing. I want to try to do something different. 
But on the other hand, he's feeling like he's got to keep up with these people, especially these four Irish dudes who are coming up so fast behind him. You know? but, but it makes me wonder why he never went further in that direction. Like, why didn't he ever like have his Daniel Lanois album? Why didn't he ever like go for that sort of stadium rock kind of righteousness? That would have been interesting. Well, I mean, you could argue he's been doing it ever since. <laughs> oh, in the in the twenty first century, yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Moment might have passed that by that point. Certainly. Yeah, and and also it's like you two owned it so completely. I'm Fair. old enough to remember that year. <laughs> I saw that tour twice. Wow, you two were mind blowing on that tour, you know. And I mean, I haven't I haven't really liked them that much since. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that that tour was incredible. There was there was it was the show they did at Madison Square Garden where the gospel choir came out for sure. still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, I felt great for like three days after that show. And, you know, they're one of the most, I mean, the, whatever the word for presence is, you know, I mean, it's like, there's, you're just riveted when you see that band on a stage in their setting. Now I've seen them bad. I saw them at the free Tibet concert. They were terrible. So what what, what does a terrible YouTube concert sound like? Uh, they're just like, they're just on a stage. They they were, they weren't on tour, so they weren't that well rehearsed. And, you know, it was, it was a little rusty and like, they didn't have their big stage set and everything like that. And it was a lot of new songs. It wasn't a bunch of classics. So yeah, it was, and they were touring on the pop record. So (laughs) need we say more. But I mean, I also saw them a couple of months ago playing at, um, you know, uh, 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 Music Care's Benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a really tiny room. And they did not have that problem. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like they played three songs that they knew how to play. They were tour tight. And, you know, they brought their arena presence to this tiny room, which, incidentally, and you're really going to be impressed with this segue. I'm, I'm Bruce, always impressed with you, Jim. <laughs> Bruce did not do um, playing at the Broadway show I saw the other night. Really? He was not arena-sized. He scaled okay. himself down. I mean, he had to. Sure. Now, does he do any kind of Tunnel of Love era songs on, that, on, on the Broadway show? He does the two we mentioned. Okay. Yeah. He, Patty comes out for Brilliant Disguise and, and Tougher Than the Rest. So those, those, I guess, are the two songs that have sort of endured as, as the standards from, from this Bruce era. I yeah. yeah, 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 um, yeah. I would say the only ones. Yeah, and, and I mean, probably a lot of, probably two more than a lot of people would have expected, right. uh, given, given kind of the way the song was received. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't a flop. It sold something like three oh, million no. copies. Oh, no. I mean, how bad was a Bruce Springsteen album going to do in 1987? Exactly. And it but, was probably yeah. only quadruple platinum. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, it still had the three top 20 hits. It's still, you mm-hmm. know, I think uh, Tunnel of Love was nominated for Video of the Year at the VMAs. It didn't win. But, uh, you know, he was still part of the pop conversation. But this is pretty much it for Bruce and at the center of pop culture. You know, 30 years later, I mean, you know, he, he obviously had a moment with The Rising and that, you know, you know, he's back on the Rolling Stone covers and he's back kind of being Bruce Springsteen, you know, capital B and capital S. But... You know, he he, uh, he doesn't have another album after this that has that you know anywhere near seven top ten hits, or it doesn't have anywhere near that kind of dominating MTV presence. Or like, this is the end of Bruce Springsteen kind of being at the center of pop culture. The pop He's, star, sure. Yeah, exactly. Did, yeah. Did, did, did it seem like it was going to be that way at the time, or what, did you think okay, he's going to get this out of a system, and the next record is going to be back to born in the USA? I mean, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. I was done with him. You okay. know, I mean, by he, that he'd point, been around no, for 15 it, years already. Well, it point. wasn't yeah. even that because I still love the earlier records. It mm-hmm. was it was the whole born in the USA push. The fact that he had become a pop star, okay. you know, and, and it felt kind of alienating because even though born in the USA was, as he insisted the other night, a protest song, <laughs> you know, even though like, you know, he was certainly someone to approve of. And I respected him enormously. I wasn't feeling the records quite as much as I did the earlier ones. And is that 
does that have to do with the overexposure? Yeah, it's got a lot to do with it. And that makes you less. I mean, look, every time a Beyonce record comes out, it's four to six weeks before I really feel like I've absorbed it and understand it and can listen to it with a reasonable amount of objectivity. Yeah, without 10 voices in your ear telling oh, you what to think about or it. Or 30,000 yeah. tweets yeah. telling you she's queen. Sure. You know? So, I mean, it's like it's very – it can be hard to separate. And often it takes time to take a record out of its context and appreciate it just for what it is. And it was a long time before I could do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so looking back on it now, it seems like you're you're not – you're not super out on the record, but it's it's, it's not one that you, that you revisit very often. On I own. don't think it's one of his best, no. Okay. I mean, it's got, like, you know, he's never made a bad album, you know. The, uh, not the, even some of those recent ones? The, uh... the, no, because the, the new, the latest one, you know, nobody's heard the new one that hasn't come out yet. The one like, that maybe nobody's... sounds like Aaron Copeland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, and, and cl- clearly doesn't sound like Aaron Copeland. Jimmy Webb and Glenn, Glenn Campbell make more sense. And I would be very interested in hearing a Bruce Springsteen album that sounds like Jimmy Webb and Glenn Campbell. But, I mean, but listen, you know, the thing with his records is he's always trying to do something different. Sure. Okay. Devils and Dust was a very dark record in the vein of Nebraska and in the vein of Tom Joad. Magic was almost like a pop record because it had all those harmonies on it. It was almost like a power pop record. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, so he's trying this. And through that lens, I can see him doing that with whatever his new album's going to be like. I mean, I don't think he's going to be doing Wichita Lineman, but I can <laughs> see him doing some like moody kind of orchestral ish ambitious thing. And maybe he sings real low. You know, I mean, it may end up sounding like an Elvis record. Sure, yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, I I can see, you know, through the lens of a record like Magic, I can see how he would do that. Okay. Uh, Well, I mean, that's that's surprising, but but also not surprising, I guess. Like, I I, I can't imagine what it was like to live through this moment in in Bruce Springsteen's kind of largesse and and just the way that that weighs on you and then the the, the impact that that has on your on your on your. Your, your personal Bruce Cannon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it's a lot easier to kind of find a sort of like a, a personal connection in those early records before he belonged to the entire universe. Yeah, and, yeah, that's part of it. But there's and, also, and the production too, obviously. Yeah. Is, but is, I mean, there's also the, the initial, because this is the way it always goes, with somebody like you loved for years and was your artist and all of a sudden, you know, like your little sister's friend is into him, sure. you know? So like, there's the initial pride that like, hey, I was right. I picked that one, you know. <laughs> I was in him since day one. Right. Um, you know, and then it just gets it all just gets too big and it gets too overexposed mm-hmm. and, and you just kinda don't want to deal with it. But yeah, coming back to it before doing this interview, I was just like, oh, all right, you know. But personally speaking, like kind of approaching it all after the fact where like you know, by the first time I'd heard Bruce Springsteen, he'd basically gone through his entire career arc, you know, the mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the the contemporary Bruce Springsteen album when I first started listening was The Ghost of Tom Joad. And by that point, he's wow. basically just doing personal projects. And that's mm-hmm. yeah, the days of Bruce Springsteen, the pop star are over. I think this is maybe his best album. I think it's it's if you want Big Bruce, go Tunnel Born to Run. Tunnel of Love is his and best I think if you, album. If you want Small Bruce, you go Tunnel of Love. The, the, oh, I'll have to ask you to step outside. Oh, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> the, 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 the lyrics, uh, they, they get it a depth. And I mean, like... Nebraska, I'm sure, is a lot of people's favorite Bruce Springsteen album, but a lot of like real fans' Bruce Springsteen album. I have no personal connection to that album at all. Uh, mm. Some nice songs. I like Atlantic City. I don't. I don't care about his, you know, Badlands ballads or you mm. know, the, the, the 
State Trooper stuff like that. That doesn't does not interest me. Uh, Bruce Springsteen singing about marriage and life and love and loss and his father and like, like that. That's that's the that's my Bruce. Mm-hmm. Like I, I much prefer I don't know Roy Orbison Bruce to to Woody Guthrie Bruce. That's fair. And that's this fair. is kind of the peak of that Bruce to me. This this is him basically laying it on the line and, and, and singing about himself in a way that I think a lot of people are not really comfortable with. I think like, I mean, there's a story uh, from the, these days, from like the, I think that came out in like a New Yorker profile five years ago about him and Stevie Van Zandt just, just uh, going to the mattresses over the song uh, Ain't Got You, which we talked about earlier, because mm-hmm. he's singing very personally about his own life in ways that his fans can't relate to. And Stevie's saying, like, don't fucking do that. Like, your fans don't want to hear about you. They want to hear about them. They want you to be them, like, on the global scale. And and that that's the kind of the tug of war of this album is Bruce kind of not knowing how much of himself to put out there, but, but dipping his toes into to a kind of an uncomfortable, uncomfortable degree into, into, into sort of un, untreaded waters. And the song craft, I think, is tremendous. I love the production, and I, I, I think it's really kind of funny that, like, alt-pop and alt-rock production is now kind of converging with it all of these years later. Uh, and I think it's it's paced really beautifully, and I, I don't know, man. I, I think that when, when when there's a Bruce Springsteen album that I want to hear straight through, this is probably the one I go to. This or Born to Run, but I think it's, it's just two different very si- two very different sides of the same no, artist. Very very much so, and that's quite a testimonial for this album. I mean, yeah. I don't agree with it. No, I expect you to, and that's fine. No, but that's I mean that is an interesting perspective because what actually I've been what I tried to do when I was like going through the encyclopedia run. Mm-hmm. And you'll appreciate this. When I used to write for the Trouser Press record guide back in the day, back, that is back one in the of the day. day. I would get every single record because you didn't you know, download back then sure. and listen to them in order and try and follow the progression. And that's still that's what done. I yeah. do. Yeah, you know? And what I was doing preparing for this is a lot of the songs, I would just sort of pull them out of, remove them from the conceit that they were of of the album they were in. Okay, that's interesting. And just be like, how is it as a song? How does it stand by itself? You know, and the two that we mentioned really stand up. And yet, and there certainly are others. And I am actually going to go back to this, album, <laughs> Andrew, and you know, think about the things you said and see, you know, and and as I usually do when you and I have conversations like this, I'll just be like. Kids got a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is the, the greatest compliment I think I've ever been paid on coming around again. So uh, uh, thank you for stopping by if no, for, no, for no other reason than to deliver me that. But uh, thank you for your, your own you know, invaluable wisdom and perspective as well. And uh, anybody who hasn't read Gems uh, Variety cover story, definitely check it out. Also, uh, a couple other interesting articles uh, surrounding it. The one I liked the most was uh, Bruce talking about his kind of contemporary favorites. Oh, yeah, uh, the iTunes article. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. Kind of shows you, uh, you know, as you said, that Bruce kind of never gives up on modernity. I was I was astonished because yeah. he sat there and he said to me that most of what he listens to is old and he was dropping all this stuff that like had come out in the last year or two. Yeah, and, and a big 69 Love Songs fan, which I, I personally yeah. appreciate a good deal. So yeah, check that out. Thank you so much for, for coming back to Billboard after all these years or months. Nice or to be back in been. the old homestead. Thank you. All right.